Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is an episode I've been looking forward to for a while. Uh, in the later part of this episode, I have about a half hour conversation with David Frum. And David Frum was the guy who wrote, apparently, uh, when he was George W. Bush's speechwriter, he wrote The Axis of Evil on. And if you would have told me that all these years later, I'd be sitting down with David Frum and having a cordial conversation about politics, I would have thought you were crazy because the Iraq war was like the seminal issue for me in my life. It's what got me involved in politics. I was a chemistry student at Binghamton when the Iraq war debate was going on. And I started joining those protests against the war and getting involved in campus politics. And that's what kind of drew me to the humanities. And then I went to law school instead of med school and all of that. And, and the Iraq war was also the issue that brought me to Barack Obama because he was the sort of main candidate in the race who opposed that war. And it was why I supported Dean before Obama in the 2004 race. All that is to say, it, it is a mark of how much our politics have changed that the conversation I have in this episode even happened. And for those of you, I know we got a lot of people in this audience who, or some who are Trump supporters. Uh, I think that interview is especially important for you because uh, David Frum is still a registered Republican who comes out of Republican politics. And so, you know, he has some pretty, you know, barbed things to say about Trump that those of you who know me and, and listen to this podcast and even disagree with me on Trump, you know, I come from that space. It's always interesting to, to hear somebody who comes from the Republican space make those arguments as well. Now, the obvious question would be, would I ever have people on who are supporters of Trump? And we have before, and we certainly will this year, especially as we go through this incredibly long what will probably be a nasty general election fight between Trump and Biden. So stay tuned for more on that. Before I get to from though, I want to talk about education because I predicted in a piece probably was a year ago that the 2024 election was going to be a race that would center on education more than any presidential race in history. One major assumption that undergirded that prediction was that I thought DeSantis had a good shot of being the nominee. And that even if he wasn't the nominee, his presence in the race would push a lot of these Florida issues. Don't say gay bill, right? A lot of that kind of stuff to the forefront. And I think it's safe to say I was probably wrong about this prediction. DeSantis was a much weaker candidate than I would have predicted. He just dropped out of the race. And he never even got going enough to even advance those arguments in, in any meaningful way that would require a rebuttal from Trump and the rest of the field. And so I think on the Republican side of things, it looks like I'm probably wrong that K-12 would be a big issue. And on the Democratic side, with Biden-Harris coming out uh, without probably any meaningful challenge, uh, Dean Phillips is not polling well, and Biden appears poised to, to stay in the race. I don't think we're going to get much from that side of the equation either. And I think this is a disservice to the nation's children and parents, because we are at a period of time in which we had serious pandemic loss, and we have a lot of pressures on the system, whether it is chronic absenteeism, that you know the, the learning loss that, that both resulted from the pandemic, but also because of historical factors, the pressure from artificial intelligence and from this massive, massive trove of technology and content that we see on the internet on, a, on another podcast that we have, Citizen Stewart, where I talk about education every week. I've been talking about how there's never been better content, right? Like I, right now I'm reteaching myself biochemistry. And when I was in college, you'd have that one textbook 
that would tell you, and, it, and in my case, my physics professor, for example, gave us an unproofed draft of his eventual textbook that wouldn't get published and had us use that as our textbook for physics in college. And we would have to basically proof it and find errors in it, which would drive us nuts because we have to do these problem sets that often didn't have an answer, right? That was what we had. And that was the one place where you could go to get information. And maybe if you were adept at using the library, you could find a couple of other textbooks, right? Now I'm going on and I'm like, all right, I don't understand this kinematics uh, lesson that I'm trying to go through, or there's this passage in a book about the Krebs cycle or, or the lack operon, and I don't really understand what they're saying. Or there's this description of bond polarity that I, doesn't make total sense to me, why the charge is the way it char it's charged or whatever. And you just go on YouTube and there are countless examples that are better than any explanation of any content I would have had in college. And that was college and I went to a good college. And so this is a tremendous opportunity for the K-12 system because there's an equivalent for all these K-12 concepts. Like I've talked to Sal Khan on this podcast before where he's doing a ton of great work there that both encompasses the explanation of new material and on the tutoring side of things and the tracking of data side of things. There is a revolution happening. But where there is not a revolution is in the public system itself. It is very static. And a lot of the innovation that's happening is often a result of enterprising innovative teachers. And the policymakers, by and large, are not visionary here. And it's partially a result of the parochial nature of our politics, right? We want to talk about Hunter Biden and this investigation and that investigation, and yada, yada. And you know, Congress is using its time to score political points not to make deep changes to help our children. All this is to say that the Biden administration just released their K-12 plan. And this was really fascinating in part because, number one, it almost didn't get any coverage. Nobody really cared about this. Uh, and number two is that it, I think it has some interesting good ideas in it. So the sort of top line summary of it is that they're focusing on three things. One is chronic absenteeism. Two is high impact tutoring. And three is extended learning in after school and during the summer. And as somebody who came out of the sort of charter school environment, the latter two, which is high impact tutoring and extended school hours, whether it's after school or during the summer, was like a hallmark of the charter school movement when I was running schools. Like I had an hour at least every day for tutoring for kids, often two hours. And then second, and I often say that that was the most important thing we ever did. And second was our school day was long. It was 7.30 to 5 and our school year was longer. And we offered optional Saturday school and spring break options for kids who were behind. And so the idea is great. And there's a lot of detail in here. You can go in there and read about it. We'll link to it in the show notes. There's both the, the Biden paper, which talks about all the data that undergirds this crisis of absenteeism that we have in this country, the impact of high doses tutoring, which is something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, and why extended learning hours matter. They make really good arguments for these things. My issue is not with the fact that they're highlighting these issues. I think it's really important. And I, and I think there's a lot of good people who worked on this. My issue is that there isn't a lot the White House has proposed that they can actually do to make any of this stick. So it basically was them releasing this plan. And then they had a big event at the White House that it sounded like they were basically announcing changes to policy, but there really weren't a lot of changes to policy. And there weren't a lot of dollars allocated to make sure any of this happens. 
like there's some COVID money that they're going to release. There's certain regulatory changes that they could make. They they had a list of, you know, a few foundations and organizations. You know, some of them are impressive, but it wasn't like the heavy hitters, right? There are a few heavy hitters in there, but not a lot, right? This was a kind of a big yawn, even though the issues are really important. The other thing I had issue with is it wasn't bold in any meaningful way. And I think this is a challenge of Congress, right? Like anything you got to get done, you got to go through Congress. But as David Frum will talk later in this podcast, is like you want to be caught trying. So what I would like to see from the Biden administration, and I'm going to do a full episode on this, uh, and this would apply equally to both the Biden and the Republican side of things, although I think each side has is more likely to do more or less of certain ideas, is be so bold, let them say no to you, but captivate the attention of the American public. Say like wildly ambitious things about what you want to do to the K-12 and beyond system. Like I would actually say childcare through the university and then even adult uh, continued learning education, like a just an all-encompassing, captivating, ambitious plan that you can get caught trying and let everybody else say no to you on that. But at least you could have the vision, right? Uh, that's what I would want to see. But if you are going to sort of nickel and dime your way to change and you want to do something lasting, I would want Democrats to think a little bit differently about the tools in their toolbox, right? They Like a lot of what you see and most of what's embedded in this plan is more money for this. How do I redeploy money for that? Yada, yada, yada. How do I use the existing accountability regime to add chronic absenteeism, which is a big part of this, where states, they're basically urging states to use chronic absenteeism as a metric. But what they're not doing enough of is what I would call strategic deregulation. What do I mean by this? For instance, looking at the just the insane amount of federal regulations and saying, well, how can I tinker with uh, licensure requirements, which are mostly state issues, but there is federal policy here, policy here that's kind of the, the cart pulling the horse, where you can really push for uh, teachers to be able to move with students from grade level to grade level so that there's a lot of data around this coming out now where having one teacher in your life over the course of many years actually helps, right? Like push that idea, right? My favorite idea, which is flexible class size models. So they talk about high dosage tutoring. Well, how do you allow for high dosage tutoring? It's really hard to do, especially when you, when you're kind of captured by the teachers' union and when it, in the way that many of my Democratic colleagues are. One of the biggest obstacles to tutoring, it was in New York, for example, is that to extend the school day to allow for more tutoring or ask teachers to tutor, it's often a violation of the collective bargaining agreements. Well, what can you do? Well, you can allow flexible class sizes, and I talk about this a lot on our other education on our education podcast is have these big class sizes and create strategic groupings of kids so that you might have like, I might make, I'm gonna make this up, 75 kids in one room, but now you have three adults in that room so that there could be a lecture style learning or some kind of personalized learning going on. And you could pull kids so that instead of having an hour of one teacher in front of 30 kids, they may have 45 minutes of lecture with 15 minutes of really small group or tutoring instruction. Now, the law needs to change both in states and the federal government in a lot of in a lot of ways to allow for that kind of thing to happen. And yes, you can also use funding incentives. Another example is parent pods, daycare, the whole world of sort of parents creating alternative school models, right? It's almost the next generation of what I was doing with charter schools. This is highly controversial and something we've talked a lot about on this podcast before. And I don't 
hold my breath that Democrats are going to be like really incentivizing vouchers and ESAs for parent pods that replace the K-12 experience. But I could see them doing things like what was recently proposed in Wisconsin, which is to loosen up the regulations to allow for parents or incentivize for parents and other community leaders to create those after-school programs and to create these tutoring environments, to create models that maybe if you're a Democrat, you don't want to replace the K-12 public education system, but can take care of things like daycare and tutoring and enrichment and things like that. And Wisconsin had some interesting ideas on the table. I'm not sure what happened with those bills, but that's another area where like, instead of having to worry about new funding, you can work to push states to deregulate and and lift any federal regulations that are standing in the way. All this is to say is that there's a different set of tools in the toolbox and all those things, deregulation is very popular with Republicans. And I think a lot of the things I just described, in my opinion, are progressive deregulatory moves. So I applaud the White House for, for instance, focusing on tutoring, for example, it's really important. Uh, I'm not sure this is gonna do anything. Uh, And I think, I, I hope that this, is the beginning of a conversation about K-12 and higher education and childcare policy. Uh, And I hope to see more from this White House where they show more energy and ambition. Because I think this is is just a flaw of my democratic friends. You know, I've come out of this world is that there are just so many people in that White House like, well, you can't actually do this. You can't actually do that. And it's like, look, this is not, we're not writing the legislation today captivate, motivate people, inspire them with your vision for children. That's what I ask. So with that, let's turn to our guest today. All right, everybody, I'm excited to welcome a guest who I have been reading in print for a long, long time, ever since I was in college. He's a former speechwriter to George W. Bush current senior editor at The Atlantic and contributor to MSNBC. Everybody, let's welcome David from. Uh, David, welcome to the Lost Debate. Thank you so much. David, uh, we are talking on the morning of January 23rd. Uh, we are about to see potentially the last stand of the Republican opposition to Trump in the primary. As you look at this, as somebody who you know is a, was a veteran of Republican politics, is there anything surprising about the way that this primary has played out? Surprising. Um, I've said through the Trump years that the defining theme of the Trump years is, is many secrets, but no mysteries. <laughs> there are things that are shocking. There are things that are appalling. There are things that are shaming. But Trump's hold on the Republican voter has been real from the beginning. That hold has been partly obtained at the price of shrinking the Republican Party. Um, It's a smaller party than it was a decade ago. It appeals to a narrower slice of America. Uh, Many of the people who don't like Trump have responded by leaving the party altogether or anyway, voting in other ways. But at every turn, not only the base of the Republican Party has followed Trump, but the leadership of the Republican Party has accommodated him, enabled him, yielded to him, excused him. So uh, no surprise, uh, but a lot of shame. And you wrote this piece and... You know, I think a lot of our younger audience won't know who Dick Morris is, for example. And a few months ago, you wrote this piece about what Biden can do to win, which has been a big conversation here on this podcast, where I think a lot of people in our audience kind of are like independents, but are skeptical of Biden's chances. And you wrote about a couple of things. Number one, which you alluded to this a little bit in your first answer, which is Trump's 
base is homogenous in a way that Biden's is not, which creates issues for Biden. And you suggested that Dick Morris, this strategist for Bill Clinton, had this sort of small ball strategy for Bill Clinton to help Clinton climb out of his bad poll numbers. Um, explain to us a little bit about you know what the context here is and how you think Biden can use small wins to claw back support. The structure of American politics is a two-party system. And because of that, almost all discussion about politics is structured around the conceit that there's, there's left and there's right, um, Democrats and Republicans, crossfire, face-off, point-counterpoint. And the implicit message that that gives people who don't follow politics closely is that these two parties are, are similar entities, and that the Democrats are as far to the left as the Republicans are to the right. And that gives a big opportunity, for example, to random egomaniacs in American public life to say, what we need is me to walk in between the two extremes of left and right. And so that's why we need Andrew Yang or Dean Phillips or whoever has presented himself for reasons of ego and vanity and persuade them that, that, that one party is as like the other. But in fact, the parties are very different from each other. The Democratic Party is a much more shambling, messy kind of coalition. It covers a lot more ideological ground. And as a result, its leaders tend to be closer to the center than Republican leaders have been, at least in the past generation. Very true in the case of, of Joe Biden. Joe Biden is the American political center. But the way we present politics means that we have to deny that. And so the challenge for someone like uh, Joe Biden or Bill Clinton before him is to remind people that they are the center and not an equal extreme with their Republican counterparts. And Dick Morris, who consulted Bill Clinton, said the way you do that is by actually reminding people of the existence of the true left. And so his advice was that the, the Democratic president should triangulate, pick equal numbers of fights, both with the Republican right and with the far left, and thus position the Democratic president near the political center, which is where both Clinton and Biden really were and are. Other Democratic presidents have been somewhat different. Obama was more of a man of the left, but uh, Clinton was not, Bill Clinton was not, and, and Biden is not. So triangulation meant that in the 1990s, especially running up to the election of 1996, Clinton would find issues where he could separate himself. Right? He, he would create battles in Congress that he would lose with his own party voting against him. And he would post wins on issues that weren't so important, but that sounded sensible to people. You know. 1990s, we are, we have a lot of violence in America, crime and violence because of the crack epidemic of the late 80s and early 90s. And American cities in the 1990s are much more unsafe than American cities are even today, despite the rise in, in crime in the past two years. And so there was a demand for ways that he could position himself. So he, he would pr propose things like school uniforms as a way to deal with gang insignia in public high schools and count on the ACLU and other liberal groups to denounce him for proposing school uniforms, but remind Americans, I'm, I'm more with you on the problem of gang violence in schools than I am with the ACLU. And he lost the fight over school uniforms. I, I, you know what? I, I think he sort of won and sort of lost, but it didn't matter. The point of the fight was not that school uniforms are some great, wonderful solution. It was to remind people in these battles between hot air machines, I'm in the center with you. And that was the approach that Clinton took and won the election in 1996. And it's a, an approach that Biden can take uh, in 2024. And what do you think is an example of this? Actually, as I listen to you, Trump is actually quite good at this in signaling to his his fringe, right? Like the, the wall is a great example of that, right? Like it didn't matter whether he got the wall or not, he was signaling, right? 
and I, I at least believe that the wall is is not relevant. Like even on the debates on the left, people go crazy over a wall, but you know, whether it's people with guns or a wall or whatever, like we have, you know, and maybe this is a good segue to ask, like taking the border, for example, as like a, this hot issue right now, maybe what could Biden do here? Like what battles should he lose to signal that he takes this seriously? Well, the crossfire structure of American media debate because we want to set it. On the right, we have a supporter of Donald Trump's who argues that we should overturn the Constitution by violence. And on the left, we have a supporter of President Biden's who says we should not overturn the Constitution by violence. Now, not overturning the, the Constitution by violence is not a left-wing position. It should be a consensus position across all of American society. But the structure of the way we present debates invites people to think that things that are not that left are that left. Now, where should Biden be on issues like, like the border? I mean, you begin with the idea that if what you want is an orderly and law-respecting immigration process, and you want reasonable amounts of immigration, but immigration controlled by the authorities, that the United States should select its immigrants rather than the immigrants just showing up and shouldering their way in, that's not a debate about the border. The border isn't where immigration enforcement takes place. Immigration enforcement takes place at the workplace. Immigrants come in order to work. If you make it easy for people to work illegally, you will attract more labor from all over the planet. If you make it more difficult for immigrants to work illegally, you will attract less labor illegally from across the planet. And so you get this perverse situation where Republicans say, we, are, we want a hard border, we want to close the border. But what we also want to do is make it legal for 14-year-olds to work in the roofing industry or serve alcohol or work in chicken processing plants and meatpacking plants. And states like Florida and Arkansas and uh, the Dakotas have passed laws to make it easier for 14-year-olds to do dangerous work, and including the serving of alcohol. Now, who do you suppose those 14-year-olds are? Where do they think they come from? What message, if you make it legal for a 14-year-old to work in the roofing industry in Florida, 14-year-olds are not going to come from American junior high schools to work on the roofing industry in Florida. They're going to come from Guatemala. They're going to come from Africa. They're going to come from China. You are inviting illegal labor. So the idea that you're going to have some screen at the border, it, it's just bad faith because people will slip. Borders can be eluded. Workplaces can be policed. You know, we don't have a lot of cases in the United States of employers successfully getting away with not paying wages or not paying overtime or having American citizen child labor because it turns out it is possible to enforce a workplace. But when you have a coalition of interests or a coalescence of interest between a laborer who's here illegally and who has made that life gamble, and an employer who's cutting corners, um, then it's very hard to enforce at the workplace. And when the state government says, you know what, we're just legalizing it anyway, so there's nothing to enforce, you get the migration patterns that we've got. That's what's happening. The United States is signaling to the world, teenagers, please come. And teenagers are coming. And you mentioned in your piece that Biden, in a way, has a structure for this small ball already. You mentioned, for instance, that he's increased funding for more police officers. You mentioned that he created a more permanent, you know, even just using the border as an example, you know, despite the issues at the border, he's actually invested resources in creating at least a more permanent status for border enforcement than was existing under the temporary COVID provisions. But I think this fight with Congress is really fascinating because you've written in other pieces just about the weird politics of the standoff that combines Israel aid, Ukraine aid, and the border together. And- Biden both needs to get something passed, but also this is an important signaling opportunity to his own party where he could show the American public that he's taking this issue seriously. But he's also dealing with a bad faith 
Congress that doesn't seem, at least in the House, to want to pass anything. The issue of emergency military aid is a wedge between the Republican Senate and the Republican House. So let's recapitulate. On October 20th, uh, President Biden asked Congress for $106 billion of an emergency defense supplemental in addition to the existing defense budget. And that money was about $60 million to buy ammunition and other supplies for Ukraine. Most of that money, by the way, will be spent inside the United States. Ukraine doesn't get very much cash from the United States. What happens, the United States sends equipment to Ukraine, and that equipment then has to be accounted for in the defense budget. That's the law. And so you put a price on a 20-year-old piece of equipment. The United States government writes a check to itself, buys that piece of equipment, puts it on a boat, and sends it toward Ukraine. There is some cash element, but again, it's mostly material things that are that have a cash value. So $60 billion for Ukraine, $13 billion to support Israel, and $14 billion for the border. Now, it's very important to understand what the border money buys. People imagine the way you fortify the border is by putting up a giant wall with um, barbed wire and man-eating crocodiles. Or, but that's, that's not how it works. The people who are entering the United States today in such big numbers are not the illegal immigrants of the 1990s or 2000s. In 1995, if you went to the border, you would see lots of men of about 19, 20, 21 coming by themselves, seeking to elude the border patrol, evade detection, and enter the big labor markets of California and Texas where they would work off the books. That's not what's happening now. What is happening now is you have families and young men who are younger, boys, who are coming and presenting themselves to the authorities and entering the asylum system and saying, I am being persecuted for one reason or another. Give me a court date for my hearing. And because there are so many of us and you can't detain us pending the court date for the hearing, and because the court date is 10 years from now, uh, give me my driver's license, give me my temporary work visa, and I will enter the country legally or with permission um, and work until my court date. Now, I'm probably going to lose that 90% or so of these applications get turned down and people are then asked to leave. And at that point, they disappear and become illegal. But they want to they wanna be found. And they want a hearing as far away in the future as possible. And so Biden's $14 billion was intended to speed up that process. And Biden could say, well, skip it. Skip the process. Get rid of the process. It's in the law. You'd have to rewrite. It's in international treaties. It's, it's not something the president can just dispense with. Pending Congress revising the way asylum law works. The only thing the president and the executive branch, unaided by Congress, can do is to accelerate the rejection of asylum claims that are going to be rejected 10 years from now. And they said, OK, well, if they're rejected in 10 months, then maybe people won't come in the first place. That's what the $14 billion is for. Now, the Senate, I think, is by and large willing to work with this because they've got a longer time horizon. They're not as partisan. And there are enough people in both parties looking for real solutions. But an important part of the House Republican Party, about half of the House members, that, so that's one, maybe one third of the whole House, but half the Republican Party in the House, they want chaos. Um, and they also, some of them are genuinely pro-Putin on Ukraine, but many others are just following President Trump's, former President Trump's lead of being anti-Ukraine because Ukraine did not cooperate with his scheme to steal the 2020 election. And, you know, one of those, in the Senate side of things, you recently wrote about this senator. Is it James Risch? Is that how you say his name? Yeah. And how he represents this conundrum that some of these Republicans are in right now, where, you know, in his example, he very much supports Ukraine. His office was ransacked on January 6th, and somebody defecated in the room next to his office. 
on the floor. Yeah, not in the bathroom, on the floor. Yeah. This guy turned around and recently endorsed Donald Trump. David, this is, I know this is not necessarily your party anymore, but explain, I'm a registered Republican. Yeah. explain this to me. Explain how he can do that. Um, one of the things that people in politics believe, almost all of them, is that it is very, very important to the United States, to Western civilization, that they personally keep their jobs. The, the idea that one Republican senator is much like another and that it's worth losing for your principles because someone who is just as qualified as you may take your place. That, that's not the way they think. They think if, if, if we lose me, all the lights go out. Um, and really almost no price is too high to pay to avoid the catastrophe that would befall if I were no longer in public life. And so the structure of human rationalization, and we're, we're all good at this. And the cleverer we are, the better we are at figuring out justifications for doing the wrong thing. I sometimes think that there's a kind of point in public life where brains become counterproductive because the brain makes you good at doing things, but it doesn't make you good at choosing things. And if you choose wrong, a good brain is better at choosing wrong than a, a weaker brain. And sometimes just a, a person with a moral compass can do the job and, you know, maybe hire very clever people for them with them, but just say, you know, it, let me just do, let me, do, it's too complicated to figure out what's the smart thing. Let's just do the, the right thing. Like that's obvious, but that's the Jimmer story. And he's the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Affairs, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he is acquiescing as uh, Congress stops aid to Ukraine and as Ukraine runs out of ammunition and could lose this war because not because of any lack of courage and sacrifice on the battlefield, but because they are denied aid by a country that promised to give them aid. Your description of the rationalizations people make and sort of the downside of intelligence reminds me of Josh Hawley, who I went to law school with. He was a friend in law school. Like he's, he's like, seems like exhibit A of that. You know, one thing you wrote about is You've been writing a lot about about what the Trump presidency would look like. And I think the Atlantic had a special issue basically looking ahead to this. So I think we could stipulate to the fact that on a personnel side of things, he's not going to hire the Jim Mattises and the John Kellys anymore. He's going to be hiring people who are sycophants, right? Now, from a sense of policy and executive action and democracy, right? Give us like the bullet list of what you think is almost a certainty if he gets into that office. Well, Trump 2017 started with this assumption. He said, I like violence. I like brutality. The generals must like violence and must like brutality. And therefore generals must like me. And it was the shock of his life to realize the most internationally minded people in the US government are the senior military commanders. They've lived abroad. They, they're the most likely people to speak a foreign language. They often have spouses or uh, their children have spouses from foreign countries. They, they've learned to see, they understand that America's greatest asset is its structure of alliances, um, that the United States does not fight alone and is the most successful when it ha when it ha uh, is part of a big coalition. And, so, and they have seen war and so they like it less than anybody. In fact, no one likes violence and brutality less than a senior military commander. And, and Trump was then stunned to discover that the place where hostility to him was most intense just about, and the whole government was among the three and four star commanders of, of the American army and Navy and Air Force. So he won't, he has been disabused of the idea that these are my generals. And they all, when he said that, that I'm not your general, I'm not your general. I work for the United States. I, my oath is to the constitution, not to the commander in chief. I don't work for you. I work for the taxpayer. 
You work for the taxpayer too, and you should be mindful of that. You're not the boss. You're the most highly ranked and highly paid of all the employees, but you're still an employee. So he won't make, but I think the main thing that people get wrong when they think about a second Trump administration is they just don't appreciate what a chaos it will be. What a heart attack of the center of government. When you talk about the people he hires, how does he get anybody through the kind of Senate he's going to have? Look, Donald Trump is campaigning on this one issue that there are all these indictments heading his way, 91 counts so far, probably there may be more because he's been caught in other states doing the same kind of thing. Um, 91 counts of indictment and counting, plus a civil damages in a sexual assault case that could result in $100 million of liability, and uh, the civil case against his company that may involve his companies being shut down and him being forbidden to do new. So these are life, existential, life-threatening civil lawsuits. So what is he going to want to do on day one is use his executive power to shut down criminal and legal process. What was the Watergate scandal all about? What was Nixon accused of doing? No one ever showed that he gave the order to break into the Watergate building. And perhaps he never did. No one, there's, no one ever knew, showed that he knew in advance about the break-in of the Watergate. What was shown by the smoking gun tape was that Nixon was at the center of a conspiracy to use the power of the presidency to shut down a criminal investigation. That was Watergate. That drove Richard Nixon from office. And that is the thing Trump is campaigning on a promise to do. Vote for me, I do Watergate. That's my promise. Exactly what Nixon did, I will do. So do, does the rest of society then say, okay, okay, fine, you got 46% of the vote and because your friends stood up some fake campaigns by Joe Manchin and Bobby Kennedy and uh, you eked it out in the Electoral College, so our 50% didn't count and your 46% did. Therefore, we have to stand by and let you destroy the American legal system. That's not what is going to happen, especially if the Democrats take the House at the same time. We're going to have a convulsion. We're going to have a series of chaoses. Um, how does Trump shut down these? Does he fire the Justice Department? Does he start firing U.S. attorneys? Yeah, you 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 know you've been in government, and I think you've been a political appointee as have I. And my sense is, what happens is he uses his political. I don't know how this works at the Justice Department because I was at the State Department. But you use you appoint whoever the most senior political appointee is that you can get into that position. Yeah. To run the Justice Department. And I don't know if this, like, my assumption is that person can be the acting attorney general. Is that you right? You can try. Yeah. You can try. And then they, they do it. They shut down these investigations. They can, they can try. And then we see what happens. And then we see whether shutting down the investigation, what if the trial has already begun? Yeah. Which I think is highly likely, right? Like, yeah. Right. Uh, you, you can try. I mean, in the end, the president may be forced to the position of self-pardoning. And um, I've been writing about this for a long time. The, um, we've been talking about hypotheticals and the one that came up in the trial. My hypothetical is the, the president could shoot the first lady. The hypothetical that was used by the judge at trial is that if, if the president writes, a president can send SEAL, SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his opponents. But the, the hypothetical I find most, you went to law school, the hypothetical I find most <laughs> riveting, if the pardon power is true, is the vice president can murder the president. Is that right? Well, because what the vice president does is he, pen in one hand for the signature, pistol in the other, bang, sign. Oh, wow. I'm now the president. The, the minute the president is dead, I'm president. I sign. The oath of office is a formality. You become president the minute the president is dead. You don't need to be sworn in. It just happens automatically. Write yourself the pardon, assassinate the president like in some Star Trek episode from 30 years ago. My own view of the, the reason you have hypotheticals is if you arrive at a crazy, if the hypothetical leads you in crazy directions, 
that's a warning that the legal premise is probably wrong. And the fact is that the, the authors of the Constitution in the 1780s, the history that was most real to them was the history of England 100 years before, 150 years before, where they had had monarchs who had tried to argue that the monarch could do anything without regard to the law. And one of those monarchs had had his head cut off and another was driven into exile. And by 1787, people in the American legal tradition would have said, it is understood that the chief executive of the country is bound by law and cannot dispense with it, cannot claim the dispensing power that the stewards claim. You do that. And the answer to a king who tried that was that he was executed. And the answer that to a president would be impeachment and removal from office. The president doesn't have these powers. But we will be, we'll have people in the streets, a la Tel Aviv of six months ago. We will have mass resignations. We will have generals confronted with orders that they think are illegal. We're going to have a heart attack at the center of the American government. Well, you know, in, in you, I imagine, know a lot about the lead up to October 7th. What worries me is what you just described was a precursor to the most devastating attack on Israel uh, they've ever had. And I wonder what happens to us in a world where this sort of deep state project of Trump's culminates in him taking office under the premise that the deep state is out to get him. Like, you know, I was looking at the filing down in Florida for the documents case. It's a political argument against the FBI and the intelligence communities. Like if he, and this is way more explicit than Netanyahu ever was. And I actually think like some of these yahoos that Netanyahu has had in his cabinet, you know, they, they would look like Henry Kissinger compared to some of the people that Trump would bring in here. Does this, I mean, this is the most leading question of all time, David, but maybe we can end on this one. But does this concern you <laughs> that it's not just our democracy, but it could be our national security at risk? Well, when um, in 2017, just about literally on Inauguration Day 2017, I wrote a piece in The Atlantic uh, in answer to a friend of mine who had been invited to serve in the administration. I didn't name the friend, obviously, but I said the piece was titled, Should I Work in the Trump Administration? And it went through a series of things you to consider. But it ended with this thought. Ultimately, when you work for a bad president, you have to be ready for the day when the president summons you to the Oval Office and asks you to do something illegal. And the question you need to ask yourself is when that moment happens and you're in the grandeur of the Oval Office, when you're in the grandeur of the Oval Office, would you be the person to say no? And I then conclude the article on saying, and even if you believe you are, even if you feel that you are the person who would say no, remember the reason that the president gave you the job in the first place was because he was equally confident you wouldn't. Mm. I mean, it makes me think of, I had a, I lived with this guy in DC named Patrick Hovakimian, uh, who was a Trump appointee in the Justice Department. And we just, you know, he was, he was a Republican, I was a Democrat, but we always got along and I, I lost track of him. And I think about him a lot because I, I, I forget which particular Trump scandal it was, but I think it was towards the end uh, with Bill Barr that Hovakimian stood up in the sort of, oh, it was during January 6th and uh, in, in the sort of election interference stuff. And he pushed back internally. I was reading his memos internal where he threatened to resign and he refused to go along with everything. And I was just really proud of him. I, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I have so many people in my life like Josh Hawley and not enough Patrick Hovakimians, but I think about people like him. And, and I hope that's the thing is like in, in a world like that, you hope enough people answer the call even though I personally would have a hard time doing it. Like I would have a hard time, not that they're ever gonna call me on that, but. It's a tough balance. Look, uh, I think we've all seen the photograph of Mitt Romney looking like he's having dinner with literally Satan when he had din that dinner with Trump. One of the things we learned from the book by my colleague McKay Coppins 
was before going to that meeting, Romney had gotten, had received telephone calls from both George W. Bush and Hillary Clinton saying to him, if Trump offers you the Secretary of State, you must take it. Now, that's kind of hard, you know, when you get, you know, the, the past president of your own party and the defeated presidential nominee of the other party saying to you, you must do this, whether you like it or not. That, that's, that's hard to dismiss out of hand, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Well, David, this has been wonderful. I've been following your work for a long time. Ever since I was a anti-Iraq protester in college, I, if you would ask me like, hey, all these years later, I sitting down with David from to talk politics and we agree on on more than we disagree on. I mean, that's the state of politics that we're in right now, man. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Harvey. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next Tuesday. Uh, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Give us that five-star rating. Leave a review. It means a lot to us. Uh, if you want to leave a voicemail, we're going to probably group together a lot of voicemails that we've gotten recently into one episode. Uh, our voicemail is 321-200-0570. Thank you very much, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>